Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen here with Real Clear Defense editor David Craig. Today we are speaking with New York Times bestselling author Brad Thor, who has a new installment in his extremely popular Scott Harvath series, Black Ice. As climate change opens up new shipping routes in the Arctic, Russia and China are increasingly challenging the US and its allies for control of newly accessible territory and resources, leading inevitably to friction and conflict. Thor has been writing thrillers for the past two decades, inspired by real-world geopolitics and informed by a network of insiders. Although his books are fictional, he has even served as a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Analytic Red Cell Unit, a group of writers brainstorming on potential terrorist threats. Here to talk with us about all the -the over-the-horizon threats that he sees is Brad Thor. Brad, welcome to Hot Wash. It's good to be with you. Thank you. It sounds like, uh, are you Scandinavian, John? Uh, my family is Danish. Yeah, Sorensen. <laughs> good for you. And David, uh, I'm the son of a U.S. Marine, so uh, there's a lot of good synergy here on this uh, on this panel. So this is nice. Yes, absolutely. So this is uh, this is the 20th installment in the Scott Harvath series. Uh, this series is super popular with folks in the military. Probably a lot of our listeners. This one's already a New York Times bestseller, out less than a month. Congratulations. Uh, Give us the elevator pitch. What's the setup for this one? So America's top spy is uh, over in Norway with his girlfriend who works for the Norwegian Intelligence Service. Uh, And he's out of vacation days, out of sick days. And uh, Northern Virginia has called and said, it's about time to get back to work. And if you're not at your desk by Monday, uh, we want your resignation. And so this is a calling for Harvath. He, he really believes in what he, he does. And it's an extension of things that I learned in my household growing up, which is there is no American dream without brave men and women willing to defend it. Uh, so Harvath loves his job. He loves his girlfriend, but he loves his job and his country more. He's getting ready to pack up and go back to, uh, to Northern Virginia and step Stepping out of his favorite cafe in Oslo, he spots a man that he killed years ago halfway around the world, and that starts a big chase that goes from Oslo all the way up into the Arctic. So with your books, we really don't know where the facts stop and the fiction begin. You you coined this term faction, uh, (laughs) a a great portmanteau. Um, uh, Tell us a little bit about what was the setting, what was the real world uh, setting that inspired the, the context for this one? So my number one job is to give you a great white knuckle thrill ride. If I've done that, I've done my job as an entertainer. If you close one of my books a little bit smarter about uh, something maybe in the geopolitical space, uh, something in the domestic political space, I've done my job as an American in that in that case. That's the icing on the cake for me is to leave my readers smarter. I'm a great, you know, my books are all short, crisp, cinematic chapters. But if I can give you that great ride and a little bit of knowledge in the book, then then I feel I've really conquered what I set out to do. So I look for things. Uh, I spend a lot of time buying steak dinners and pitchers of beer for people in the military, the intelligence community, uh, the diplomatic corps. And I ask them two questions. What keeps you up at night? And what do you think the media is not paying enough attention to? And so as I was getting ready to do the research for Black Ice, the thing that kept coming up and up and up over and over again about what the media wasn't paying enough attention to was the ambitions of Russia and China of all countries in the Arctic. Uh, So a lot of people, this is not a climate change book. Uh, The US Navy recognized that 
the ice is melting in the Arctic. So I don't care what you think about climate change and what I think about it doesn't make any bit of difference. I don't want to get into the politics of that. But the U.S. Navy said, listen, we've got some issues in the Arctic now because the temperatures are rising twice as fast uh, over anywhere else on the globe. Uh, the ice is turned into slush for longer and longer periods. And the Chinese have now linked hands with the Russians up there. And this is going to be the new Cold War. We're on track to, to, to reignite all of that stuff uh, post-World War II because there are tremendous mineral resources up there. So there's oil, natural gas, minerals. Uh, but there's also some very serious strategic and defense concerns that exist up in the Arctic. And I was just fascinated by this. And as I dug into it, I realized, oh, my God, we've got two icebreakers. That's it. One of them doesn't work. Uh, the Chinese have two. They're building a third, which is a nuke. The Russians have 40. They're currently building three more and they're bringing 12 more online over the next decade. And I thought, wow, we're really behind the curve. And uh, Mike Pompeo said the same thing at a meeting of the Arctic Council. He said, yeah, we weren't taking this seriously enough, but we're paying attention to it now, particularly as China declared itself a quote unquote. This is great. I call this the Seinfeld of diplomatic terms. China declared itself a near Arctic state. The nearest Chinese settlement to the Arctic is over 800 miles away. China's full of it. This is a play to get a toehold and eventually a permanent foothold in the Arctic. There's only eight Arctic nations. We're one of them vis-a-vis -vis Alaska. Um, and China has no claims in the Arctic, but boy, are they trying. They are really, really trying to beg, borrow, steal, or purchase their way into the Arctic. Right. Well, this is uh, that's consistent with their approach everywhere else. Right. Redefining the map, uh, you know, further and further out in terms of what what constitutes their intercoastal waterways in the South China Sea and and elsewhere. Uh, David, why don't you jump in here? You've been a, a longtime uh, watcher of uh, China in the geopolitical space and what constitutes that threat. You know, how, how do you see um, the board being laid out and, and some of the steps that, that China's been taking recently to, to, to be more and more aggressive in this space. Right. The China-Russia relationship is really interesting. I, I did a graduate thesis on China and Southeast Asia. And, you know, the people don't realize that there's actually been border skirmishes between China and Russia. And then there's the famous Stalin quote at the end of World War II where he had made a really racist comment about the Chinese to Roosevelt and Churchill and said that you have to really watch out for these yellow bastards. So the China relationship with Russia is really co complex more so than what the media portrays. Uh, China, Russia is using China in a way to advance their cause because financially Russia just can't keep pace with the West in terms of what we're trying to do in the Arctic. So it's kind of difficult, but China, once they get China involved, as, as Brad mentioned, it's, they're not going to be able to dial that back. And China's island chain strategy, you know, there's the first and second <clears throat> island chain, but people forget that it doesn't stop there. It goes global at some point. Uh, and people fail to study the history of China and their and their global ambitions. And I think that's one thing that Brad's really picked up here through his source network, uh, fortunately, that uh, is really interesting. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to ask Brad about. I mean, how you've really curated a really impressive source network, it seems, to really hit on these hot topics and in this book in particular. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, how, I, how I, you I, sort of 
curated this source network that's been so effective at identifying key concerns national security wise? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. My so I, I tell people so this this is the twentieth book in the Scott Harvest series, but I tell people that my books are like the James Bond movies. You can jump in to the latest James Bond movie, never having seen one before. It doesn't matter. You don't have to go back to the beginning and read every Brad Thor book. You could start with Black Ice if you want to. Um, and so what's, what's fascinating for me is when I put out my very first book uh, shortly after 9-11 called The Lions of Lucerne, I got two incredible pieces of fan mail from both sides of the aisle in DC. One was from Newt Gingrich, uh, and the other one was from a former Carter administration cabinet member saying I had captured Washington insider politics like nothing uh, that he'd ever read before. So I, I realized that I had uh, people in D.C. were paying attention even to the first book and they were reading them. And uh, there's something about being an author. People will talk to you. Uh, I, I, I don't have to I don't hold an, uh, a security clearance, so I don't have to put my manuscripts in front of review boards or anything like that. But I've slowly built a network over the over the years. It started with the very first book where I had a handful of people I could go to, one of one of whom was Harry Humphreys, who was a plank owner with SEAL Team 6. And Harry's a wild guy. And he uh, he uh, uh, he's an advisor on all the Jerry Bruckheimer movies. Couldn't have been nicer, more helpful. Um, another guy, very interesting, one of my neighbors in L.A., had been part of a U.S. Army intelligence unit that uh, was on the old, what they called the Fiesta Cantina compound for Delta before Delta Force uh, built their new uh, facility out at Fort Bragg. And he had been recruited, the U.S. Army during the Cold War had combed through the Ranger bats and had looked for guys that had spoken German growing up at home, that had parents who were German speakers. And they took them, and the idea was to put them in Berlin in case the Soviets ever overran the wall. These guys would be a guerrilla force. And it was fascinating because this guy was recently out of the Army, and there were certain things he could talk about, certain things he couldn't. He had gone to work for Guns and Ammo magazine uh, as an ad sales uh, guy, Super nice, super smart. And he would tell these stories about how, you know, they had weapons caches in different parks in Berlin. They had radio sets uh, plastered up behind walls in beer stubes in the basements around Berlin. And uh, through just a handful of contacts, I was able to network my way out and build this relationship of uh, national security professionals, uh, tier one operators, uh, people in the government and things like that. I was very, very fortunate. Uh, I had grown up thinking that writing was probably the most solid profession in the world, world, that it's just one guy or one woman sitting in a room just hammering away at a typewriter. And it's it's not like that at all. I couldn't do what I do without incredible generosity of both active and retired people throughout uh, those communities. So amongst your network after your uh, your hotel bar cocktails, et cetera, uh, what are you hearing from people? How uh, what's the perception within the military of how we are stacking up to the Chinese threat? Well, so one of the biggest places that we are not stacking up is with the U.S. Navy. And obviously, uh, or not obviously, I don't know if you saw, but in, you know, in several weeks before we're recording this podcast, there were uh, there was a big op-ed from Reagan's former secretary of the Navy uh, in the Wall Street Journal talking about how we're really falling behind. And the problem is, is that we are we are elevating 
uh, leadership in the Navy who are apple polishers instead of ass kickers, uh, in that uh, guys like Nimitz, uh, Healy, people who helped us, uh, admirals who helped us win World War II would never be allowed to remain in today's Navy because it's kind of a one strike and you're out. So we have a problem not only with the kind of leadership that's that's being moved up the ladder in the Navy, but we also have an equipment problem. Uh, these deployments are too long. Uh, we're not investing enough. We, we really do have a big... Uh, problem with investing. Uh, I look at the icebreaker situation uh, again with the Arctic and how we have one that doesn't work and uh, one icebreaker that doesn't work and uh, all this stuff. And so I think we're realizing now that we've kind of coasted for too long on our superpower status and we need to reinvest in technology. Uh, one of the biggest things that I'm hearing just on the technology side is uh, the issue with rare earth elements. Uh, so as we're recording this and we're watching Afghanistan fall, I've got a TV on in the background uh, and how rapidly we're getting close to, to Kabul being choked off, which is, uh, I, I go back and forth. David, my dad, as I said uh, you know earlier, is a no longer active United States. Marine. We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. It takes us 13 weeks to make a Marine in the United States. There really was a cultural problem with Afghanistan. There was a government problem where the government wasn't seen fully as legitimate. Uh, incredible corruption in Afghanistan. Uh, but one of the things I was listening to uh, to a former Navy admiral this morning, and he was talking about what we're leaving behind. He said, I understand the argument for getting out of Afghanistan, but if you look at how successful we were leveraging three to 4,000 troops over there, and there's a trillion dollars worth of uh, rare earth elements in the ground uh, lithium, you can't do a car battery without lithium. Um, you know, what's the trade-off? I understand we have a very war-weary public, but what do we give up when we completely pull out of someplace like that? So uh, it, it's just very, very interesting to watch that. So I'm hearing those same arguments. So that was James Stavridis. Uh, full disclosure, I blurred James's last book, 2034, which is about the U.S. going to war with China, which is a fabulous thriller. Uh, you really get an education reading that book, uh, and it's a fun read. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. There was a there's a professor from the Brookings Institute named Talmadge, and she was tweeting this morning about everybody talking about uh this whole thing in Kabul being like Saigon. And she said, that is so not true. And boy, people who don't understand the military or military history are missing a big point here, which is uh, that, yeah, this, it, South Vietnam had about the same number of troops as the Afghan uh, national security forces do. The North had about 200,000. The Taliban's 100,000 or less in the North Vietnamese were armored. I mean, they could really do combined arms operations. They were backed by a superpower. Uh, this is very dramatic. This is actually, to compare what's happening in Kabul to Saigon is to undersell it. It's considerably more dramatic. And I have a buddy of mine that just rotated back right before Bagram was uh, was abandoned. And uh, we, were, we were communicating when he was there. And he said, there's this Alamo mentality. He said, we're worried that they're gonna come over the wall any moment. The whole time he was there, uh, you know, until very, very recently, they really spooked about that. So that's a big grab bag, John. I'm sorry. I kind of went bounced all around on you there, but that's just a lot of what I'm hearing. And that's what I'm talking to people about right now. Right. Absolutely. And the, and the, the rare earth element issues, uh, you know, is, is a big part of their Africa policy and their expansion into uh, a lot of other nations. And uh, even their domestic policy, yeah. where they've decided because they've got such a, 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 a huge amount of, uh, of rare earth elements that they can access to, is they're not going to export raw materials. 
they want to own the whole development chain. So they want right. to they want to mine them and then they want to put them into chips or or whatever right. whatever applications. Right. Right. I mean, in anybody who knows about rare earths knows that. I yeah. mean, we use these for for lasing targets and I mean, you, you can't do anything in the modern U.S. military with without something that's that's got rare earth elements as a as a part of it. it it's it's pretty serious stuff. So we're we're leaving a yeah. great deposit. If we don't want to mine them here, if we don't want to, we should be refining them and things like that. But we did have a mine here that was closed down. You know, we we have to figure out what this balance is between national security and and uh, environmental protection. I would argue that uh, I'd rather be secure as a nation, uh, even if the environment takes a little bit of a hit. Uh, and I think there's a way to do both. I think you can be a responsible steward of, of the land and things like that here while we also make ourselves independent of a nation like China. And not to put too fine a point on it, but if COVID has taught us nothing else. It's that we are overly reliant on kind of just-in-time delivery. And uh, our supply chain actually is a national security issue that we need to address because the fact that medicines coming from China, PPEs coming from China, we are overly dependent uh, upon the Chinese. And some of the Europeans have said, you know what, we're out. We're not doing this anymore. We're going to figure out how to develop these things. France being one of them to say, it's just, you know, how do you strike back at China if you know, all your cholesterol meds are coming from there and your other pharmaceuticals <laughs> and things like that. You know, it's, it's right. Or even just, you know, I mean, a, a, a large number of the, you know, hard drives are manufactured in a, in one Valley in Thailand, you know, it's mm -hmm. Thailand is, uh, not controlled by China, but China is, not yet. you know, ag aggressively making inroads in, in all of the nations around there. Um, well, and by the way, John, no, just go, go real, real quick, one of the things that I don't know if we're going to get to it is this whole Belt and Road Initiative mm -hmm. that China is doing where they are investing in infrastructure programs around the world. And I'm paying particular attention to Thailand because China is trying to hand them $30 billion because they want to cut a canal across the Kral right. Isthmus uh, so that they can avoid uh, the Straits of Malacca, which the U.S. Navy can apply stranglehold pressure to. And then what's going to happen? The Chinese, once they get there, I, I joke in in, in my thriller black ice that they are it's not the camel's nose in the tent it's the polar bear's nose in the tent you don't want any part of a polar bear in your tent but as soon as the chinese put money into your country they then try to exert influence over your domestic and your foreign policy and if china can cut a canal across thailand at that point they are actually going to break thailand in half and there is there are two different types of thai people that will live above the northern part of the canal and the southern part and then they're going to agitate to break up the southern part break it away from thailand and create another country there so uh, i david couldn't have hit it better we we fail to study china and its history at our peril we really as a nation as voters as responsible stewards of our republic we all need to be looking at china much more closely so we can apply apply appropriate pressure on our representatives in DC. Well, I think that, uh, you know, also it gets, it gets back to what you were saying about uh, building up the Navy and, you know, the long deployments, et cetera. I mean, it's been a long time since we've had a, a serious major naval battle, uh, you know, a large scale surface warship exchange. Uh, you know, it's been mostly non-state actors, uh, you know, attacking in, you know, the uh, Straits of Hormuz or whatever. But, uh, you know, the reality of China's anti-ship ballistic capability that they've been aggressively de developing and, you know, the, the real battle for that space, uh, you know, it feels to a certain ex extent like uh, 
you know, I mean, I, I think about Iraq and, and Afghanistan in a way and, and you know, how uh, unprepared we were, you know, just in terms of armored Humvees. You know, it took us mm-hmm. a while to like transfer to be like, oh, this is a need that we should have been preparing for, you know, and just the, you know, jerry-rigged armor ups that we were doing for a long period, you know, on you're, you're going to have that parallel on the sea where, you know, we're going to be trying, you and it takes a lot longer to build a ship than it does to slap a couple iron plates on a Humvee. Well, and so, then if, if China does move against Taiwan, you know, how close are we going to be able to get in there to engage? I mean, what's the strategy right. going to be? How do we, uh, uh, as far as the, the range of missiles and what we can do with, right. with, with our aircraft off of carriers and where we're going to position strike groups and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I, and I'm sure that there are people at the Pentagon because I know there's even old dusty binders on the shelf. If the Canadians invade, <laughs> this binder comes down. And we, all right, what happens if Canada invades? Which I swear yeah, yeah. they're the most patient yeah. invading army in the world. Because once a year, I'll dig out my change and I'll find a Canadian penny. So it's one Canadian penny at a time, one actor at a time. They're very, very slow. It could take them 10,000 years to conquer us. But Canada's on the march and we need to be watching out for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I like what I like about and getting back to the Arctic is, uh, again, this this focus that um, on, on, you know, traditionally, uh, at least for the last 20 years of the war on terror, you, uh, the carrier groups have largely been a platform for projecting air power, supporting uh, ground troops, et cetera. It's been, a, you know, essentially mobile air bases that we move closer to places where we want to bomb or where we want to provide QRF for or, or, or whatever. Uh, but the Arctic is a real sea battle. I mean, we're talking about new routes. Uh, you know, through being completely open. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you'd mentioned in another context, you know, talking about uh, the number of Russian bases that are uh, reopening, you know, or coming up. Talk talk about that a little bit. I mean, we've been focusing on China, but there is the Russian component, although, you know, their forces are, you know, significantly degraded since the Cold War. You know, they still have you know, nuclear attack submarines. They have, you know, oh, yeah. n- you know, nuclear ICBM, you know, uh, or SLBM uh, submarines, you know, and they're surfacing in areas where they could not previously surface. That's correct. And so, you know, in one of the big things that I would talk to very smart people I know who don't pay attention to geopolitics uh, during the whole Syria thing and Russia's involvement there. And I said, okay, do you guys understand that Russia has a port there? And it's a warm water port that they have access to and how much of Russia's ships can be ice locked for a certain amount of uh, time during the year. So it, 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 the whole bag of, uh, of, of, of issues and things Russia's looking to achieve is, is very important. So uh, they, they are competing for access to uh, these resources in the Arctic as well. So as, you, as I said in the book, they have unshuttered a ton of Cold War era bases. Now, base could be an airstrip or something like that, but they're really trying uh, to to extend their influence up there. There's been obviously a lot of missile tests uh, and stuff like that, where they're flying missiles over uh, their own areas up there. But uh, the Russians did an interesting thing. They sent out a little mini sub with a, with, with a robotic arm and they sailed to the North Pole and they planted a Russian flag on the seabed uh, at the North Pole as if to say, okay, we own all this area up here. We, we claim this, you know, I claim this land for France. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of, it feels 1900. It feels like, yeah, it's it's, it's very, very, very old school. Yeah, it it does. But they, they are making claims that 
their shelf extends way out into the into the Arctic, right. and that so this area and none of it's been none of it's been proven. It's a lot of hot air, just like with the Chinese. But uh, you know, it, it, the Russians are very they don't like the the radar station that we're doing with the Norwegian intelligence service at Vardo, right at the Russian border up in northern Norway, where the northern fleet is. Um, you know, it, it, Russia is. They are still a player. They're still a problem. They it is it it is a uh, uh, it's something that I'm very concerned with. And and one of my biggest fears has been, uh, particularly about Russia, is uh, the Rand Corporation did a big study about what happens if uh, Putin, the revanchist, decides to move on one of the Baltic NATO members, so Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia. What happens? And so they war game this at Rand and they kept, you know, red team, blue team, and they kept switching the generals from one side to the other. And Russia won every single time. Like the longest it took them to take all three was 60 hours. And uh, this is a problem because, you know, we've got the Article 5 uh, uh, subcomponent to the to the NATO treaty. And what is, what does the average American do if Putin, much the way he took the Crimean Peninsula, if he goes in and takes one or all three of those Baltic NATO members, uh, you know, most Americans can't find Lat Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia on a map and they're tired of war. I, I don't know that the American public would have the stomach to honor an Article 5. Uh, and it's only been Article 5 has only been uh, called up once and we did it. You know, this is the, for those of you who are listening who know this, uh, I'm going to say this for those who don't, the Article 5 uh, is an attack on one NATO member, is an attack on all. And we we activated that after the 9-11 attacks and we brought our NATO partners together to help us with Afghanistan. So um, Russia's tricky and I think we, we kind of turn a blind eye to Russia at our peril. Um, they're also dangerous, right? They, they lost that one missile on the, I think it was the floor the White Sea and it detonated when they brought it up. And so, you know, the nuke reactor or the, the nuclear the, the detectors and, you know, Finland and Sweden and everything were going haywire and the Russians were denying anything had happened same way they did uh, with Chernobyl. So Russia's competition up there, back to our icebreaker thing, is very interesting because early in Biden's administration, they wanted to do a FONOP. So they wanted to run a ship through the Northern Sea Route over Russia and said, okay, well, what icebreaker could we send up there? And they're like, we can't. We've got the other one that's going down to Antarctica to, to resupply the station down there. And that's it. And if 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 our if we and we wouldn't even want to risk the one good one we have because we're afraid it to break down. Here we're trying to show force to the Russians and strength, and then we need them to tow us out, or we need the Chinese to tow us out. So that was that was very wisely abandoned, but um, there is still a desire uh, that we're seeing out of D.C. to to kind of push back and show the Russians we're we're, we're not going to take stuff from them. Uh, it, it is disappointing for me that we're not in a better position as far as our uh, icebreaker strength. But the Polar Cutter Program uh, did the last time I see get good. Uh, it was in the budget and in a good juice of fundraising uh, or funds. It started with the Trump administration and Biden has continued that, but we're not going to see a new uh, icebreaker. We're supposed to, we're supposed to build six, three heavy and three mediums. Uh, the heavies can go through, I think it's 10 feet of ice, the mediums through eight feet of ice. But the first one that we're going to see isn't going to be getting sea trials till 2024. So you know, a lot going on in the world. So let's, let's circle back to Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, your career writing these fictional novels has has paralleled really the the twenty year plus war on terror that that we've had. Um, 
you know, in writing these books and talking to your contacts and, and, you know, creating a fictional character, but based in a lot of really real world events, has your opinion about the war on terror writ large changed? How did you feel at the beginning in terms of Iraq and uh, choosing to go into Iraq first and then Afghanistan? Uh, how has, how has the war on terror changed in your thinking, uh, it, you know, going through these ideas and, uh, and, and these characters? Well, uh, I was all for going in Afghanistan uh, with the original uh, purpose of the mission to be to degrade al-Qaeda and to get bin Laden, not to nation build. Um, I'm not a big Ann Coulter fan, but she had a great line, which is you cannot give democracy to a country that has more goats than flush toilets. And I thought that was, in, having gone to Afghanistan, I met a lot of great people over there. I mean, some really, really amazing folks. I went, went over in 2008. Um, but it, Freedom has to be something that you're willing to fight for, to bleed for, and die for. You cannot hand freedom and democracy over to a people. That's number one. So that's why I'm I'm particularly against nation building in the Islamic world, where Islam is the predominant religion. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because where we have gone in and tried to nation build, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Iraq was already light years ahead, uh, kind of on, a, on the civilizational scale, uh, law court and things like this. I would say Iraq was ahead of the curve, more modern than Afghanistan was, no question. The infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. So, but when we as a nation go in nation build and allow people to base their constitution on Sharia law that doesn't respect the rights of women, uh, minorities, uh, people that are not in the majority religion, that's already a mistake. And I also don't like the idea that the 9-11 attacks were hatched inside Afghanistan and uh, because of their weak government. And we suffered tremendously because of that. And what did, what did Afghanistan get out of it? We came over and helped them improve their roads, their bridges, their infrastructure. You know, we did all this stuff. And so I, I don't think that's an appropriate response. We're talking about the rare earth minerals. And I'm I, I, leaving Iraq aside because that's a different that's a different situation. And the kind of presuppositions that led us to war in Iraq were, were different than Afghanistan. Afghanistan was where bin Laden was and where Al Qaeda was based. There was no question. That was a black and white issue. But to then go in and build up that nation, and I understand some of the arguments. We didn't want it to revert to what it was and become a terrorist stronghold again. But, you know, I'm looking at this going, okay, we've got a massive rare earth element issue. Why are we not mining rare earth elements in Afghanistan? If Why isn't there a trade-off with the Afghan people to say, listen, we're going to help as much as we can get you guys to this level, but you can't expect the American taxpayer to fit the, foot the entire bill. We've got, we've got, you know, soldiers and Marines dying over here. Uh, you know, this is what we're going to ask for in exchange. Uh, so I'm not a take all the oil kind of guy, the way Trump was with Iraq. And that's why I was trying to separate that out. But I do believe that there shouldn't be, I'm not going to say it's a reward for launching the 9-11 attacks on us, but I do believe there has to be, I get it, we want to set the example for liberty and democracy and all that kind of stuff. You know, thousands of years ago, we would have gone in and taken everything. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the right way to go, but I think we just made a series of mistakes. There wasn't enough work done to root out corruption. I don't like basing any 
national constitution on a religion, it, it, tilting it towards one majority group in the country. I don't care if it's a if it's a if it's a caste system and we're we're giving favor to the lighter skinned people uh, or the landowners or whatever it is. It's either we are trying to raise people up uh, as individuals uh, or we're not. Back to China, by the way. That's why I always talk about why Chinese uh, espionage is so robust. It's it's ripoff of American uh, technology is because China suppresses the individual. And you can only have creativity and advancement in the sciences and in medicine when the individual is allowed to flourish. But China doesn't allow that. So they 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 don't advance in those areas uh, without stealing from countries like us. So th this is all tied into my own concept of ordered liberty in the United States uh, and why our system has done so well. Look at you, the Romans. Look what the Romans had. The Romans, as far as manpower and access to resources and brain power and all that kind of stuff. And look how far we came so quickly after the Revolutionary War, how the, the ideas that are enshrined in the founding documents were like turbocharging civilization. So it wasn't a manpower, it wasn't a resources thing. It was this idea about empowering the individual, protecting the individual in, in the eyes of the law, making sure that their private property could not be infringed upon and their rights couldn't be infringed upon, and they would be allowed to go do whatever they chose to do for the benefit of themselves and their families and how that accelerated things. It's a model that I'd like to see reproduced around the world because I think it's good for all people, regardless of if you're Buddhist, if you're Muslim, if you're Hindu, if you're Baptist. Um, but I think there was a large cultural component that was missing from our engagement in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I know you can't change a place overnight. And I know we got to do hearts and minds. Uh, but I think it's a mistake when we allow one particular group uh, to, to have their wishes uh, enshrined uh, as the national foundation, uh, particularly when it's an ideology. I, I just I'm anti that. But again, we create a Marine in 13 weeks. And in 20 years, we couldn't create an Afghan army that could defend itself and defend its own nation. So that's got, it's not because we didn't try hard enough. And it's not because we didn't give them the best training and equipment available. There is a cultural disconnect there. And so that's yeah. why I don't like nation building, particularly in that part of the world, because it is such a massive cultural disconnect. David, you served in Helmand. Uh, I got to imagine that right now is a difficult time for a lot of veterans who served in Afghanistan uh, what what are you feeling right now? What are you hearing from your peers? Um, I think Brad kind of hit on it that when we went down to about 3,000 troops, uh, they really weren't involved that greatly. They were predominantly facilitating the Afghan National Army's operations. And it was highlighted just the other day that it was the overhead imagery uh, and support that was necessary for targeting purposes that the Afghans don't have right now. I think it was even, I can't remember, one of the retired generals had brought this up just a day or two ago. Um, I think the current administration's strategy is uh, was maybe a miscalculation. I think they think that the Belt and Road Initiative that Brad mentioned does run through Afghanistan, and maybe they figured that China would make sure that this would re remain secure. However, China's thought on this is just to co-opt the Taliban, future Taliban government, to allow this to happen. If they get, if the Taliban gets money and China stays out of whatever the Taliban does, then the Taliban will let them do whatever they want. 
So that's that's a great disappointment, I think. I think we could have downgraded our operations in other areas of the world, but kept, like what Brad said, a minimal force in Afghanistan. I mean, we spent a lot of money building... Like a Germany air- or a Korea or... Right. We, we built this huge air base in Helmand, which had to have been for more than just what we were doing in Afghanistan, obviously. And now we've just given that away, basically. Like Brad just mentioned, we built all this infrastructure. It's just going to facilitate China's ability to take... In fact, when I was there in 2011, we had just found a rare earth element in Helmand province. Uh, and they even predicted that it was just going to go to China because we said it would be too expensive to mine. But it's actually not the expense of the mining. We've just created so many regulations that prevent us from even processing rare earth elements in the United States. Uh, and that's how that just enabled China to monopolize the rare earth element market. I mean, it's more than a monopoly. Uh, they control 99% of rare earth elements right now, uh, as Brad alluded to earlier. Yeah, so so overall, the veteran community, I think, is, is pretty upset because we, the other thing is we pulled out of there without really coordinating anything with the Afghan National Army. And our allies. Um, yeah. Yeah, by, and our by room, it was literally like folks woke up in the morning and everybody was gone. Where'd they go? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like yeah. Brad just said, the, uh, even our allies, we, you know, they're, they're, I mean, they're thinking, what are you guys doing? You know, we, we still have people there. Um, I mean, is, you know, is there a good way to leave? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, when it's when it's this major, I mean, is there an orderly retreat? I think there could have been. Um, but like Brad mentioned, there, it was almost no, the cost of keeping the minimal force that we had there was very minimal especially if we had drawn down in other places of the world that we didn't necessarily need to be. Yep. And it's, listen, it's, we're coming up on 20 years, but we're the 19th year, right? So we're coming up on, on 20 and how many years, what was Vietnam? 19 years. So there seems to be this limit to American uh, kind of patience with these, uh, these things. Uh, And I, uh, well, when you have fathers serving with their sons, I mean, it's, yeah. It's tough. That's, it, no, I mean, that, that, that's got to be a psychological, you know, dissonance for a lot of people. It's like, you know, what are we doing here? And, and I mean, you know, perhaps the only optimistic note with China and Afghanistan is that they'll, you know, suffer the same fate as everybody else that, you know, the Afghans and the Taliban are going to do what they want. And, you know, uh, if some uh, global power has uh, illusions of, of forcing them to their will. I mean, I, I mean, I think that you, you've talked about a lot of the major issues and what the benefits of staying were, but let's not forget all of the, you know, the blue on blue, you know, killings oh, yeah. and tr- training. And, you know, I, I mean, just the the demoralizing nature of trying to uh, insert ourselves in, in an incredibly culturally complex situation that, you know, just did not bend to our will. Right. And I think you're, you're correct in pointing to Korea, Germany, things like this. Those are, again, I don't want to keep, you know, riding this cultural horse, but Japan, Korea, Germany, these people saw themselves as one people. The Afghans don't see themselves as one people. It is family, village, 
tribe. That is the way it goes. It is the graveyard of empires for a reason. I mean, you're not over there fighting a complete and total people. So to try to bring them all together with a national identity is almost impossible. It could take, you know, how much longer should we have stayed? 20 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? There, there are arguments to be made on both sides. I understand that. I, I, we do keep forces in other places. Uh, but as we did, we were not having the blue on blue stuff that was going on and things like that. You know, you were able to move a nation from a despicable thing that happened, whether it was the Japanese or the Germans, and actually move them forward as a nation all together. They weren't as splintered. And that's the problem with Afghanistan. It is so riven with these factions uh, that it, I think it's, it's nearly impossible to bring them all together and move them all en masse towards the same goal. I, I just don't think it's possible over there. Well, and, and just regardless of how much indoor plumbing they have, the institutions, the government institutions that they just just completely lacked of, of a, you know, a rule of law, of a, a, a non-corrupt, you know, yep. centralized state yep. actor just was, was it's just doesn't exist, just doesn't exist. And so, you know, I think about the rare earth extraction, but, you know, the security uh, necessary to support that effort and then, you know, the endemic corruption that would inevitably result from, you know, uh, be, you know, transforming Afghanistan into uh, a resource extraction nation. I, I you know, even I, the I just Chinese don't, you know, were pulling yeah. out. The Chinese yeah, had yeah. this big copper mine and yeah. they said it is so much of a pain in the ass to relocate, relocate people we need to re relocate. Right. And the security issues have been a pain in the ass. So even China that, you know, is willing to gamble in different places was starting to roll back. And the amount of Chinese who were in Afghanistan, the Chinese were pulling them out. They were investing less money if you look year over year. And yes, you were correct, John. They had started sitting down talking with the Taliban. They've been playing both sides because they right. don't know who's going to come out on top, whether it's the right, existing right. Afghan government or the Taliban. But China does have some things about the Taliban it does not like. They have asked the Taliban to moderate. Uh, they don't want the Taliban supporting some of these extremist uh, Uyghur terrorist, uh, there's a particular group, uh, and I forget, it's like the East Turkey Muslim Uyghur faction right. or whatever. So China's got some things there that are not hunky-dory with, with the Taliban. And China's concerned right. about its its international image, believe it or not. And they don't want to be seen backing the Taliban, putting women in soccer stadiums and, and shooting them in the head with AK-47s and things like this. So it's going to be very, I, we either could be seeing a protracted bloody civil war, which uh, I would be stunned uh, to see, but perhaps having had two decades worth of freedom in their mouths, the seeds have been planted with the Afghans. And maybe now they're willing to, to fight and to die uh, to get their freedom. I mean, look at the French didn't help us against the Brits until we proved we could start winning stuff. That might be a good historical strategy, <laughs> a benchmark. You guys prove you can fight and you can win, and then we'll come in and help. David, you got any final thoughts on this? Where do we go from here? Uh, I, certainly only time will tell what happens in Afghanistan, but just in terms of how we think about the costs that we've paid as a nation and as individuals, as families, the long deployments, the degrading of uh, our, our military resources, but also a lot of lessons learned. Uh, are you, are you, Pessimistic? Are you optimistic about what are we going to take away from the forever war? I mean, after Vietnam, I don't think we've ever really learned our lessons. I think Vietnam actually instigated uh, Colin Powell to revisit uh, Clausewitz, actually. You know, total war. Uh, 
our approach to Vietnam is we never really went. We were always kind of hesitant as far as to getting involved in a war in Vietnam throughout the entire Vietnam War. Um, Afghanistan is totally different, like Brad mentioned. In fact, I think when we were talking um, to Sebastian Younger, you know, the best option there, referencing what Brad just mentioned about the differences with the tribes and the families and everything, we may have been better off just keeping Masood John al alive and allowing the Northern Alliance to sort of coalesce these different regional, I wouldn't say warlords, but tribal leaders to create some sort of federated system of governance in Afghanistan probably would have been our best option. But I don't think we realize the importance of keeping alive people that are incredibly charismatic and, and sort of natural leaders like Masood John or even Sheikh Sitar in Al-Ambar province. We, we allowed one of his security guards to kill him. And how do we and not, his, how did we not identify somebody else, David? So the Lion of the Panjshir, Masood, was incredibly charismatic. He was a great military strategist. In 20 years, how did we not find another Masood? How did we right. not find somebody else? It just exactly. blows my mind that that wasn't being exactly. developed, that we didn't work on a farm team of like incredibly uh, charismatic Afghans that, that people could get behind and respect who weren't necessarily politicians, but we could develop outside like that. that that's a big failure on our part, I think. Exactly. I think, I think that's what we need to really reflect on in the future. Well, Brad, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, uh, you know, what I think is a is a great summer read uh, action packed uh, is also something that hopefully will make folks think about uh, some very real issues that we're struggling with uh, all over the world. Uh, are you, you are a machine. I mean, one a year. <laughs> uh, are you I assume you're already working on your next. Uh, is, do you have any idea, you know, what's what's on the uh, geopolitical horizon that's that's uh, uh, tickling your fancy right now? Well, you know, this is always the, this is always the risk that I run is you, we're a year out from the next book, so I really can't talk about it. But yeah, I'm I'm deep into it, <laughs> and I do see something bubbling on the other side of the world that I think is going to be in the headlines. And um, I would love to come back next year and to talk to you and say, hey, remember when you asked me what was I working on? I can say, well, this is what I couldn't tell you at the time, and here's <laughs> here's what it is. Uh, but yeah, I've got something that I think is is really big, and I I think I'm going to help move people's eyes and attention. Uh, to another part of the world that uh, that we in America and the West in general need to be paying attention to, where we all have some interests that we need to see happen correctly or it's going to be problematic. So uh, I hate to be coy, but I've got a lot of competitors that I think would love to know a year in advance what I'm working on so they could try to <laughs> get it to market quicker. Well, I hope your next book is as good for Newport News shipbuilding as this one promises to be. I grew up in Hampton Road, so that's my bias. Uh, we will have to end it there for today. Brad Thor, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out RealClearDefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military defense and national security issues that matter. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen. <laughs>